We've been making our way through the book of Acts. We're actually on sermon number 21 of 24, if you'd like to track with us. And this morning we land in chapter 20. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, to to have your Bibles open. We're going to move around a little bit inside chapter 20 of the book of Acts. A reminder again, we go to the book of Acts to learn the story of earliest Christianity and we go to the story of earliest Christianity to to ask questions about how it is the church was able to accomplish so much with so little. How did they get their power? If you want to learn what's true about a thing, one of the best ways is to go to the origins of a thing. So we're exploring what's true and powerful about the church. And so this morning in, in Acts chapter 20, we hit a major turning point. The Apostle Paul has been living and working in Ephesus for three years. I mean, three tremendous years of ministry. But after that long sojourn in Ephesus, he's about to take his leave. He's about to go back to Jerusalem, and he calls together all of the leaders of the church. And he wants to speak to them one last time. This is for for those Jarvis who have done a little bit of Bible school. This is the famous farewell address of Paul to the church in Ephesus. And why is it important? Well, it's actually the only time in the book of Acts that Paul is speaking specifically to Christians and speaking specifically about what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. Most of the time he's speaking to to non-believers, to to an audience that he's trying to, to sway and convince. But here, this is a word for the church about the church. It's spoken to to all of his leaders, to the cohort of ministers. And this is the only time, again, that we have this sustained address in the book of Acts about what the church looks like. So the question that we we come with when we look at Acts 20 is, what kind of church is it? What kind of ministry is God calling the church to be a part of? What should gospel ministry look like? What should a gospel church look like? And the answer that Paul gives and you'll find it in your outline, is that it's characterized by, well, at least these three things. A commitment to truth being penultimate, but also recognition that truth needs to be spoken carefully and considerately. And so you'll notice the number of times as you glance through there, Paul talks about tears, his own tears, tears that he's shed for those that he's in ministry with. And those two things leading to a, to a deeply connected church family that that lives out those images of the church being a body, a church being more than just an institution or a place that you attend, but a a place that you belong, a family. So you have truth, you have tears, you have ties. That's where we're headed this morning. Let's, Let's pray for a moment and then jump in. Heavenly Father, for just a few minutes, we'd love to place ourselves right in that same audience the group of of eager ministers sitting at the feet of the Apostle Paul as he says goodbye. We want to learn from him, but more importantly, we want to learn from you. We want to learn about how the gospel can intersect powerfully, not just in our own lives, but through our lives and the lives of other people. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Have your way with us in this room. Move freely. Move in spite of whatever impediments there may be there in our lives to us really hearing and understanding And God, shape us and change us through the gift of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
going to start in verses 20 and 21 of Acts chapter 20. So I'm going to ask you to flip there with me. By the way, verse 20 is actually a sermon in miniature, and it's, it's often been used that way. Acts 20, verse 20 is an entire sermon. But let me read that for you, that section. You know that I have not hesitated, Paul says, to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are these three little pairs, three dyads. You'll find them there in your notes. Paul says he preached and he taught. He did it publicly and he did it in homes. He did it unhesitatingly, but he did it helpfully. Three great little dyads there. You see why it could be a sermon in itself. Uh, Let's look at it just briefly. He says, I preached and I taught. I mean, we recognize that that you have there part of the essence of what the church is here to do. There is this body of content that's meant to be conveyed. You see down there in verse 30, if you'll glance ahead, he's concerned about what happens when the church makes a mess of it. Even from your own number, he says, some will arise and they'll distort the truth. So Paul recognizes that part of the job of those who are in ministry is to protect and propagate and preach and teach things that are true. That's what the church is here to do. Why is that important? If, if you want to know what's true about something, if you want to really know someone, then the two have to be tied together. If you really wanted to get to know me, for example, you couldn't just come up to me and say, Richard, I, I know you. I, and when I think of you, I think of a Filipino barber who lives in Hamilton. That's it. Three things you could say about that. First, there's nothing wrong with being a Filipino barber who lives in Hamilton. Uh, I've lived in Hamilton. Our family lives in Hamilton. There's nothing wrong with being a barber. I depend on them. Uh, There's nothing wrong with being Filipino. We love the Filipino members of our church family here. So that's the first thing. Second thing we might want to say is, okay, it's a free country. You have freedom of speech. You have freedom of conscience. You're welcome to say that. Nobody's going to arrest you. Nobody's going to fine you. But here's the third thing that we want to say. It's just not true. It's not true. And if you really wanted to get to know someone, if you want to get to know what's true about them, you have to start there. You want to know God? Then you can't believe just anything about God. You need to start with something that's true. It's the same when you want to come to know yourself, isn't it? You want to know something about yourself? Our world, I think, these days would say that that this is what's true about the self, that, that you're just a body. That's all that you really are. Not a soul, just physical. In fact, they did experiments where they, they weighed a body carefully just before a person died, and they weighed them just after they died. They tried to see, is there any difference? When the soul left, is there any difference in weight? And if there's no difference, there's no soul. Crazy science, right? There is, there is more to the body, and there is more to life than than just what can be measured. The Bible says you're more complex than that. Your soul and body joyfully knit together. The world would probably say that you are the product of evolutionary biology and your genes. That on the one side, and that you're a product of your culture and the environment, and those two fused together, 
that's you. The Bible says, no, it's more complex than that. You're also made in the image of God. You're also plagued by sin. One of those accounts of your life is true. The other is something less than true. And if you want to know who you really are, then you're going to have to know something that's true about you. Unless you know the truth about who you are, you're never going to know who you are. Unless you know the truth about God, you're never going to know who God really is. So that's the first thing. The church is a place where we try to believe the true things that the Bible says about who we are and who God is. Remember those little pairs? That's the first one. Preaching and teaching. It means the church is here to convey truth. Here's the second thing, though. Paul says, I did it unhesitatingly, but I did it helpfully. The wonderful little polarity there. Because I preached and I taught, and I did it without hesitation. It's a word that means I didn't shrink back. When the moment came, I didn't shy away from it. And it's easy to do that because biblical truth always offends somebody somewhere. It certainly did in Paul's day. It certainly does in our day. There's no culture. There's no city. There's no neighborhood where you cannot take biblical truth and communicate it and not find that there's somebody who's offended by it. That only makes sense. In fact, I think that's one of the marks of the gospel being true. How so? Well, if we believe that the gospel is is God speaking to us, if it's from God, it means it's not the product just of this culture over here or that culture over there. If it was, it was the product of one particular culture, then everybody in this culture over here that produced it would love everything that it says, and everything in this culture over here that didn't would probably push back against it. But if it comes from God, if it comes from above, it makes sense that there might be something in it that rubs every culture at different points the wrong way. The Bible will always be offensive in some way, in some place, to every person and every culture. Here's, here's a classic illustration of what that looks like. If you talk to, to Middle Eastern people and tell them what the Bible says about forgiveness, they will likely find it outrageous. Why? The, the idea that you need to forgive someone who's wronged you, even if they, shy, they show no sign of repentance or contrition, that you must not pay back. In the middle of a shame and honor culture, that is complete nonsense. They think it's nuts. And it's offensive. But if you tell them what the Bible says about sexuality and about family, they say, yeah, that makes sense. That sounds true. Now, let's leap the ocean. Let's come to the GTA. And often it's the other way around. You tell people what the Bible says about forgiveness, and they consider this, they say, well, that's a pretty high standard, but, but they like it. That's something to aspire to. Turn the other cheek. You tell people here what the Bible says about sexuality and family, they say, that is repressive, terrible, awful. We're going to restrict it. We're even going to try now to restrict it in law. It's from God. And if it is from God, then doesn't it make sense that it's going to offend different people in different ways? So that's the first thing. Paul is unhesitating. It means the job, the job of the church is to lift up the Bible even when we know that it might offend some people somewhere and sometime. We don't shrink back. We don't hesitate. But here's the other thing. Remember, it's a dyad. Unhesitatingly, 
but also helpfully. We convey truth, we do it helpfully. Because, boy, I mean, this, this is so important. There are people, maybe you know them, there are churches, and I'm sure you know them, who are really good on the not hesitating part. They're happy to take the flack. In fact, they take particular glee, it seems, in letting people know when they've fallen from God's standards. They, they, they take particular joy in railing against the sins of the world and of its people. But I don't know that they're being particularly helpful in the way they do it. See, that word, that word helpful, it, it probably means more than we think. Over in verse 32, have a look there, Acts 20, 32. Paul actually says, now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which, by the way, is an interesting way of talking about the Bible, to the word of his grace, which can build you up. In another place, he's writing to his friend, his young apprentice, Timothy, he says, in 1 Timothy, make sure that you teach sound doctrine. But the word really is, is healthy. Our understanding of truth is that it's never just something that we believe for its own sake and we put it up there on a philosophical pedestal. Don't just say I have the truth and because I have the truth, I'm better, more secure than other people. I know the truth. Isn't it wonderful for me? No, no. Truth is, it's food for the heart. It's, it's food for the soul. It's nutrients for the character. It's, it's helpful. It's, it's a healthy thing. That's why Paul often, when he talks about the truth, he, he doesn't say know the truth. He doesn't just say memorize truth. He says things like this. Colossians 3 says, let the word of truth dwell inside of you. Let it do its work in you. You lack courage right now. Maybe you feel like you're lacking compassion or joy or whatever it is. It might be that one of the reasons is that, is that truth, as not just a cognitive thing, but as an experience, as a, as a soul-changing thing, hasn't, hasn't somehow been screwed down deeply enough into your life. How does that happen? Well, part three of that little mini-sermon in verse 20. He preaches and teaches. He does it unhesitatingly and helpfully. He does it, he says, both publicly and from house to house. Now, this is important, and it's easy to miss. Paul not only brings the truth out there in public speaking like this, but he does it in homes. He does it in groups. He does it in, in personal relationships. What that means, I think, is that if you, if you want to know and have that, that soul-forming experience of truth, it's not enough to just come here. I mean, sometimes the sermon's all right. Sometimes they're not so good. I'll let you decide about today. But even if they're great all the time, even if it's a home run every week, that's not enough. That's never enough. Where does truth really get applied? Where does it really get sown into your life? The truth is it happens in conversations. It gets in in the practice laboratory of life, in the realm of relationships, in study, in talking, in weeping, in being together. It's not just enough to come to a big meeting, to come here and 
and hear the music and listen to the singing and take notes. This thing needs to get into your soul and that happens when it's lived out in a place that is daily and real. Community. It means is that you can't just make church an attender sport. Just come and listen to someone talk. It's not something that you attend. It's something to which you belong. It's a body of which you're a part. And so let me put in one more plug for one of those core values of MCBC. If you are not connected meaningfully in some group outside of Sunday morning, we're failing you. We are failing you. Because we're not providing you with the opportunity for truth to get sown down deep in your life. And if we're failing you, you need to call us on it. You need to come see us and say, I'm not connected. Find me a place. You can take it all to Sheldon. No, you don't. You can, of course, you can come to any of us. But we're failing you and you're failing yourself. You're in the middle of an orchard and and you're starving for lack of fruit. Okay, let's let's move from truth to tears, because this is important. I want you to see as you glance through how many times tears are mentioned in this passage. How much weeping is going on? Let's start at the top, verse 18. Paul says, You know, Uh, The whole time that I was with you, living with you, from the first day that I came to the province of Asia, I served the Lord with humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing and all those plots by my Jewish opponents. Look down at verse 31 in the bottom. It says, remember that for three years I never stopped warning. Now, that word is a tough word. Warning you each night and each day with tears. I was with you, he says, constantly talking to you about the truth, but weeping all the way. It's it's a lot like what he says to the church in Corinth. I came to you, he says, in weakness, with fear and with trembling. My message, my preaching, weren't with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. What's he saying? Well, first of all, Paul says, I came to be with you. I was with you. Here he says, you know how I lived the whole time and I was with you. That's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's more significant than it sounds when we say it in English. I was with you. Remember, it says in the Gospels that, that Jesus appointed 12 disciples to be with him. Uh, same expression, to be, to be with you means to be exposed, to have every part of your life visible, to be with someone. Imagine you're, uh, you're in school. You, you go to a class, you get to know the professor, the teacher, you might decide you're going to get to know them a little bit better, and so you go to the office hours, you seek them out, you ask a little bit about the class, you're connected, you maybe even share a cup of tea together. You are connected at least academically, with that person. But you're not connected at all the other points in your life. They don't see your family life. They don't see your love life. They don't see your church life. You're connected at one point, but not at all points. The interface is still 
That's kind of narrow, isn't it? I want you to know that, and you know this already, that in this age of social media, that interface is narrower than it has ever been in history. You have such control over what people see in you. I mean, when you're on the phone, there are parts of it that you couldn't hide. People could hear the tremor in your voice or the giddiness of your laugh. But but in a world of social media, you can so carefully manage and massage your conversation. You can hide it when you're sending a text. We had to invent little characters to convey the emotion when the words didn't. Right? And now you watch people don't even text the words anymore. They just text the emoticons. Right? But you have no way of knowing if that's the actual emotion. Facebook, you can, you can hide it. When you see people face to face, when you live together in close community, you can't hide your life. That's what Paul's trying to say about the church. He came to be utterly connected in all points. In all points. Not just one narrow interface. And secondly, he says, he came in humility and in weakness. Boy, I mean, key ideas. Really revolutionary ideas. You ask, and we asked a few weeks ago, how is it that the gospel changed the ancient world so dramatically and so quickly? Well, here's one of the ways. By taking a word that was disparaged and despised, the word humility, always a negative word in that culture, always meant low and defeated. It was used as an insult. By taking that word that was never a virtue and lifting it up in a way that people had never imagined. It appears now in all the lists of Christian virtues in the Bible. In the 200 times that it's used in Scripture, it's in the context of righteousness. This is what right living looks like. It's humble. Why is it such a good thing? To all those shame and honor cultures back then, Paul says, Look, I'm coming to you, not in strength and power and authority, but in weakness and in trembling. Because I want you to see the power of God, not the power of me. Where there's less of me, there's more room for God. It must have left all those first century listeners wondering, why? Why is that such a good thing? Here's why. Nothing gets in the way of grace quite like pride. Here's how it happens. When you're filled with it, when you have too much of it, you'll be convinced that you don't need saving. When you're completely devoid of it, self-loathing, you're convinced that you're not worth saving. In either case, pride is messing you up. Too much of it or too little of it. You're going back and forth on this spectrum between inflated ego and self-loathing. And then the gospel comes and it blows you off the spectrum. You realize now that you have, you have God's regard, his delight, his love. You have all of those things and they're not subject to your own performance. Whether you have a good day or a bad day, it just doesn't matter. He loves you as much now as he will a billion years from now. You'll notice as you look through that chapter, Acts 20, how often Paul uses the word grace. He talks about the gospel, the gospel of grace. In verse 32, he calls the whole Bible the word of his grace. Grace yanks you off that spectrum, the pride spectrum. And as a consequence, 
not only can you be more realistic about your flaws, but you also can be more grounded in your assurance that the love of God is unbroken. And that allows you, I think, to be real in a way that you could never be real before. You're not afraid of looking weak. You're not anxious about other people noticing how anxious you are. You're you're not distressed when people see how distressed you are. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. It made no sense at the time. I doubt it makes a lot more sense in our time either. We want strength. We want expertise. We want competence. But I will guarantee you this. A speaker or a friend or a counselor who is not pulled together, but has been humbled and moved by the gospel, a person who is trembling and feeling inadequate, but filled just the same with the love and the humility that that show a crucified Savior, that will be a better listener, a more powerful agent of change, a better friend in your life than any polished, pulled-together expert. We're saved not because we pulled ourselves together, but we're saved by admitting and believing in the one who was devastated for us. He didn't win. It it sure looks like he lost. He went to the cross. He humbled himself. And you know what all that means? It means tears. It means ministry has to have a place for that kind of vulnerability and openness. Tears. You can cry. You should cry. Men, it's okay to cry. Caucasians, it's okay to cry. (laughs) Why is that so important? I'll tell you why. If we're a community of truth, it's easy to become oppressive. It's easy for a community that says we have the truth and other people, maybe they have less of it. They become oppressive unless it's accompanied with tears. I am so tired. I'm tired of having to apologize for Christian brothers and and sisters who say true things, but say them in such a hateful way. Whatever we speak about, and whatever the hot button issue of the day is, a person's sexuality or, or something to do with the moral fabric of our nation, or worst of all, when we talk about hell, if I don't see tears welling up in a person's eye, I wonder, I wonder how much the gospel has been screwed in deeply into their life. It's only when you, when you have truth and tears wed together that, that you have the fabric of a real church. And when you have truth and when you have tears, the product of those two things are, things are ties that, that run, that run deeper than, I think, than anything else that you'll find. You can't have friendship, you can't have community without truth. One of the things that creates friendship is common convictions, common beliefs. But you also can't have community or friendship without tears, without vulnerability, transparency, without feeling like you can be open and share who you are and not have somebody jump down your throat. You need truth and tears. And when you have the two of them, you get ties. The product of the Christian church is the product of 
proclamation of truth, if the dynamic or the power of the Christian church is evidence and evident in humility and in tears, then then the product of all of it at the end is friendship. Let's look at the very end of the passage. It says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. And they all wept and they embraced him and they kissed him. C.S. Lewis is actually quite famous for talking about this in, in a book he wrote called The Four Loves. Because if you're going to depict romantic love, you'd, you'd probably depict two people facing each other, looking longingly into each other's eyes. But if you're going to depict friendship, you would draw two people standing shoulder to shoulder, looking together at something else. Friendship is not self-absorbed, frankly. It happens when two people find that the same thing amazes them. That they're in awe of the same thing. They're attracted to the same thing. They're motivated by the same thing. What does that mean in the church? What is it that we share? What is it that amazes us and motivates us and captivates us? That thing to which we're both kneeling. Any two people who kneel before Christ have the ability to become the deepest of friends in a way that that is baffling to the world. It's how churches in Rwanda can be filled with the victims and the perpetrators of genocide sitting side by side in friendship. It's how the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa can go to the perpetrators of one of the most systematic forms of hatred and marginalization in history and put them in a room with their victims and two of them can walk out shoulder to shoulder. A kind of of grounded spiritual friendship will allow us to connect with people who are not like us and go to a depth that that we've never found before. I mean, the truth is, we have acquaintances with lots of people who are different from us, but most of our friends are like us. Think about your own circle of friends. But have you ever felt the ability to be a friend with somebody with whom you share nothing else except Jesus? That's when you know that God's at work. Different education, different race, different background, everything. You know how enriching that is? It's unbelievable. Jesus Christ creates this unity across barriers that no other power can breach. Unity between human beings, not just we get along, but deep, abiding, life-transforming spiritual friendships. That's the fruit of it all. If you have truth, if you have tears, then you get those ties. Friendships, unlike anything else in the world. Jesus died alone so that we could live together. Isn't it time to do that? If you feel like your church is just one more mark on your calendar, isn't it time to do that? It is not good. The Bible says right at the very beginning, for a man or a woman to be alone. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you've given us a picture of community. You've given us a challenge. You've given us resources. You've given us the gospel. In the sight of your son, Jesus Christ, so alone, giving up so much so that we could be together. Father, we repent of our busyness. Repent of our fear, particularly around the loss of privacy. We repent of all the things that keep us from being a real grounded community with each other. Every point of our lives, being in connection with the lives of brothers and sisters around us, make us, Lord, what we ought to be. We want to come to the communion table now in full communion with you, but also enjoying the fruit of that relationship in our communion with each other. Meet us here, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name.